Hello, I'm Carl Halliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today joining with us is John Pollock, the author of this corking good adventure, Cork Boat. John, thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, we're looking forward to going on a little cruise here with you during this next half hour. But first of all, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. What are you, what are you doing now, and uh, where are you living? Well, I, I am a writer, and I'm living in uh, New York City, and I recently uh, moved uh, there from Washington, D.C., where I had been working as a speechwriter for, for several years. And uh, of late have been uh, just finished up Cork Boat and, and on tour to, to talk about it and, and share the story with people. Fine, fine, very good. Uh, one thing uh, I guess was mentioned in the publicity or in the, in the book that it said you are the recipient of the O. Henry Pun World Championship contest. Yes, yeah. Actually, I was the the world pun champion in in 1995. It's it's a funny contest, uh, but but it's set up like a tournament uh, with a judge and a timekeeper, and you're you're paired with an opponent on stage, and they pick a topic at, at random, and then you have five seconds to make a pun on that topic, and then your opponent has five seconds, and then you have five seconds, and it goes back and forth, uh, and when somebody misses you're out and so for example the they they I, I got a bad draw and I, I was paired against a former champion and he didn't really take me seriously who's this new kid on the block and and they picked the topic and the topic was air vehicles and I said well I hope I picked the right flying machine and the judge intervenes and he says son you've got to make a pun I said, W-R-I-G-H-T, I hope I picked the right flying machine. And the crowd started cheering, and, and suddenly this, this guy knew he was in for a fight. So. And what was the winning pun? I want to hear that. Well, it was more you. of a, a war of attrition. Mm -hmm. uh, and and on, on the air vehicles topic, it went back and forth where he said, I'm going to uh, be 42 next week, uh, <laughs> so I'm never going to see 17 again. And I said, well, I'm going to be 27 next week. And, and then he says, oh, you're just up here winging it. And I said, you too? <laughs> anyway, it went on and on like that. And yeah. I ended up uh, beating a, a parabenic on external body parts as the topic. So I was, it was a close call, but I, I survived. Not necessarily on brilliance, but just mm -hmm. on willingness to stoop low. Well, well, that's that's very good, and I'm glad it must have been a close call because I'm sure your opponent said he had a bone to pick with you, uh, John. Before uh, that's an internal body part, but go well, ahead. That's fine. Okay. Well, I'm a librarian, not a well, internist. But uh, uh, John, uh, you did, you did uh, talk about quite a book. Was it? You're interesting. You were a speechwriter for Bill Clinton, President Clinton. Yes, uh, at the White House. It was a great job. Uh, working at the White House is interesting because you you kind of have a front row seat for for history and I came in in the year 2000 and uh, got to write about everything from the environment to taxes to eulogies to you name it I mean anything the president talks about uh, I got to work on and and of course uh, Clinton was such a great speaker that that writing speeches for him was was great fun was a lot of pressure, did you find, uh, timetables here? We need a speech on this in two minutes or something like that? Well, you generally had a little bit more notice than that. Uh, it could be a couple hours. It could be a couple of days. Uh, big speeches that are scheduled weeks in advance, you have some, some time to prepare. But as you can imagine, in, in the White House, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So while there's a team of six speechwriters and... <coughs> Each one is primarily responsible for each 
speech, their own speech, uh, there's a lot of editing that goes on uh, before it lands on the president's desk. Right. How did you, how did you get the job? I moved to Washington in 1997 in January, and it was a terribly cold January. And I I went pounding the pavement looking for work as a speechwriter because I had I'd worked as a journalist earlier, I had worked on campaigns, and I figured that speechwriting was the marriage of of politics and writing, and that I that might be interesting. And I ended up getting a job on. Capitol Hill, writing for Congressman David Bonnier, who was the Democratic whip at the time. That's the number two Democrat in the House. And he was from your home state. He was from my home state of Michigan. And after almost three years there, I left my job to take a creative sabbatical and build the cork boat. And in the middle of building the cork boat, I got a call from the White House uh, saying that there was an opening would I be interested? And I, I had to carefully weigh writing speeches for the president versus building a cork boat. And I decided that the cork boat uh, uh, could wait uh, a little bit as I went to serve the country. And, and uh, I'm sure we're glad you did do that. Uh, why, why a cork boat? And uh, when did you first decide to build one? I got <clears throat> the idea for the cork boat when I was a little boy. And when I was six, I built a boat out of orange crates and firewood and I sealed up the cracks with political bumper stickers and <laughs> got all the neighbors to come down to the pond at the end of our block and the boat had a very short maiden voyage straight down <laughs> and luckily the pond was only a couple feet deep right. so I was able to climb out but I decided then and there that the next boat I built I would build out of something guaranteed to float no matter what and in a in my mind, as, as a six-year-old, I thought, well, if you can't sink a cork, you can't sink a cork boat. So I decided, okay, I'm going to build a boat out of corks. But the thing I didn't realize is that my, I was growing faster than my parents were drinking. And so it took a while to save the corks. Great. Save the corks. Uh, so how many years then uh, altogether did you Well, about it? 25 years later, I, mm -hmm. I revived the project, started thinking more and more about uh, about upping the rate of savings. I mean, th by that time I had about 3,000 saved, enough to float a six-year-old boy, but not really uh, anywhere close to what right. one might need to float someone in their 30s. And so I recruited a partner and uh, set out to bars and restaurants to collect corks and tell them about the project. And if you ever want a lesson in humility, go from the halls of power to uh, slogging through the slush of February, begging for corks from bars and restaurants, <laughs> and people look at you and say, are you nuts? And of course, you have to be a little, little bit nuts to take on a project like that. But in the end, it all worked out. So you kept this vision of this cork boat three years at Stanford and even even when you were torn apart and, and you were a strolling violinist, is that correct? Yes, yeah, I, I always saved corks because it seemed like a long-term project but a, a project worth pursuing. I've always been an impatient person and I think that one of the lessons that I learned through building this boat, which was a project ultimately spanning 30 years, that patience pays off if you're if you're persistent 
right. about something. And it's not as if I wasn't doing anything with my life in the intervening time. Mm -hmm. But that was, the cork boat was always simmering on the, on the back burner of my imagination. People who read your book will pick up on your sense of humor, which makes the book an absolute delight to read. But there, the book itself it deals with some very strong losses that you had to uh, endure. Can you talk a little bit about those? The book uh, is a book about a cork boat, but it's also a book about life in, in general. And I lost my sister to an accident when she was 14 and I was 12. And I know that anybody who's, who's lost someone that they love uh, can understand how, how devastating it can be. And in, in the course of, of the Cork Boat Project many years later, uh, I, I lost my Aunt Marlene with whom I was very close. And I realized that, that the through this project, and not just through this project, but this project brought it home, was that even in the face of loss and, and deep sadness that you need to embrace the joys of life. Nevertheless, it doesn't cancel out the sadness. It doesn't make it go away. But nor does that grief need to, nor should it keep you from going for the fun and the laughter that that is there for us if we if we reach for it. We live in really serious times now with the post 9/11 and the war dragging on in Iraq and 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 no end in sight. And I think that you could get down forever if you let yourself uh, and I but I think that it's important to to reach for the joy in life even as we wrestle with serious matters and 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 especially because we wrestle with serious matters when when I was building the boat in Washington DC uh, we were approaching the launch day and 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 then I was in the, we're actually working in the Capitol that day and and arrived at work shortly before nine and and my boss congressman bonier was was doing an interview with c-span i think out, outside and his security officer plainclothes had had a an earpiece and he leaned over to me and said a, a plane just hit the world trade center and we thought what and we hurried inside and turned on the tv and then boom we saw the other plane hit and then boom, the Pentagon was hit. And we're looking around, we're in the United States Capitol and another plane is, is, is missing, hijacked. And I said, well, should we evacuate? And, and it was a question because the Capitol is, is built of stone. I, I mean, it's, it's a massive building. And the security officer said, they're telling us to stay put. And then I looked out in the hallway and I saw staff from uh, Dick Gephardt's office, he was the uh, minority leader, you know, racing out. And I thought, well, they're higher up the food chain than we are. Maybe they know something. So we all started evacuating and the cops were yelling, there's a plane, there's a plane. 
evacuate, get out, get out. And you rush outside, and, and it's this beautiful blue fall day, and, and you can't even see the smoke from the Pentagon because it's a couple miles away, and nothing. It was just, it was this surreal feeling. Anyway, we worked the rest of that week doing what Congress could do, passing the appropriations, mustering the resources. And that Saturday, I, I went up to the garage where we were building the, the cork boat, and I opened up the garage door, and there were all the corks and the netting and the tools, and it was a, a mess. And I, I started thinking, what does this matter in the wake of, of this horrible calamity being a, a light-hearted project. And, and then a friend of mine showed up and said, oh, I'm glad you're, you're here. I really needed to work on the boat. And then another friend showed up and said, wow, I, you know, I was hoping you, you guys would be here. I wanted to, I wanted to talk with you. And, and, and so we started assembling corks because it was a very labor-intensive project. We had to sort through ultimately a third of a million corks to, to figure out the right ones and put them together. And ultimately, I decided that the boat didn't matter less in the wake of 9-11, that it mattered more. Because, again, if you let your spirit be crushed by all the bad things that happen in the world, you know, we'd be flat as a pancake. Yeah. Good thoughts. Uh, how did you go about designing the cork boat, and uh, what role did uh, another leading character, your, your buddy Garth Goldstein, play in this whole project? Well, the, the cork boat had no precedent. Uh, no one had been uh, bold enough or foolish enough, shall we say, to attempt building a, a cork out of tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of, of wine corks. And we try, the, the big question is how do you take uh, a, a cork that, that's, that's this big or thousands and thousands of them and attach them into a, a boat that stays one boat instead of thousands of individual tiny boats. And we first tried glue and different types of glue and that didn't work very well and, and came up with all sorts of schemes. But, but Garth and I uh, together worked out a system almost by accident of using rubber bands to attach the corks. And if you take seven corks and, and stand them together and pop a rubber band around them, they will form a hexagon. And that's a very stable form. And we were able to use more corks, bigger rubber bands, to build hexagonal discs the size of, of a dinner plate, which, when stacked up, form a, a hexagonal cork log, which we wrapped in commercial fish netting and sewed shut. So if you can imagine building a, a hexagonal cork sausage almost with, with a skin of, of tough netting that's sewn really tight mm -hmm. and corks in perfect alignment inside, that's the basic building block of the boat. And we lashed those uh, together. Uh, if you think of a honeycomb, those are hexa hexagons and they fit together perfectly. And, and so we, we follow that same principle uh, in, in, in building a boat that looks something like a cross between Contiki and a Viking ship. Uh, 22 feet long, uh, just under 5 feet wide, uh, with a big sweeping prow and a big mass, uh, four giant sweep oars, 
and a, and a rudder for steering. John, uh, who built this boat? The boat uh, was designed by uh, myself and Garth, uh, but we had a lot of help from volunteers. As I mentioned earlier, sorting through a third of a million corks by hand was hugely labor intensive. I mean, Saturday after Sunday after Saturday after Sunday, uh, to find the right corks and to assemble them into the hexagonal discs and to, and to get the boat built. And ultimately over a hundred people volunteered on the boat and I was pretty shameless about recruiting them. Uh, you often go to a party and people say, oh, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm building the world's first, first cork boat. Uh, what are you doing Saturday? Uh, we're, you know, we're looking for help. Uh, do you want to help build it? And, and some people would say, wow, that sounds great. And, and some would say, Call me when it launches. <laughs> and uh, so we had a lot of volunteer help. And when the boat was done and we, we put it into the Potomac, there was just a sense of elation as we had finally gotten it done. And a lot of the volunteers who had worked on the boat came down and, and took a ride on it. And we put the boat back in the garage for the winter, feeling a little bit like Howard Hughes, who had flown the Spruce Goose and taken it aloft and proved all the critics and mm -hmm. naysayers wrong. But then the next spring, I got a call from Cork Supply USA, which was the cork company uh, that had donated a lot of corks. When, when people weren't drinking fast enough at Washington's bars and restaurants, hard to believe, but uh, <laughs> I called up this cork company and asked if they would donate some of their, their test corks for the, for the project. And anyway, they said, are you still thinking about taking the cork boat on a, on a big journey? And I said, Absolutely, because my plan had always been to take the cork boat through European wine country uh, on a long river trip, uh, kind of part Huckleberry Finn uh, meets uh, the Three Musketeers. And so they, the, the owner of this cork company really loved the cork boat and said, well, we'd like to send you to Portugal to go down the Douro River. And I said, fantastic when do we go and he said well we've got six weeks we need to get it there in six weeks and that that was a tight deadline because garth and i uh, well having built a great cork boat the the first launch had, had revealed a few problems our steering didn't work the sail was too small and while it floated beautifully we we really had a lot of work to get done to, to get it ready for a major river trip. And where was the first launch? Uh, in the Potomac. In the Potomac. In, in Washington, D.C., okay. which was for an afternoon. Right. Uh, and, but we, we got the boat uh, ready. We put it in a shipping container, put it on a, a freighter out of Baltimore, shipped it to, to Portugal, and then met it in, in Porto. Now, the Douro River starts in Spain, actually, as the Duero River, uh, but changes name when it reaches the Portuguese border into, into Portuguese, right. and it stretches for 135 miles from the Spanish frontier, wow. winds its way through northern Portugal, through wine country, and empties into the Atlantic Ocean at Porto, which is where port wine comes from. So it was a very appropriate uh, destination uh, that we were aiming for. Great. And how did the, the Portuguese take to your boats? The Portuguese were fantastic. Uh, we could not have gotten a, a warmer welcome. The only tricky bit was at the very beginning getting the boat out of customs, and they weren't sure quite how to tax this 
this object? Was it a boat? Was it uh, an agricultural product? What, what was the, the cork boat? But they, they released it and uh, we trucked it up to the border and launched it in a little village called Barca de Alva, set in these great dry hills with terraced vineyards rising to a blue sky and, and home-built fishing boats there and widows in black and the whole village turned out to, to see us off and uh, the, the Portuguese press had been very interested in this boat because Portugal is the, the world's leading producer of cork. So to bring a cork boat through Portuguese wine country was the ultimate homage uh, to mm -hmm. the land and the heritage, especially since Portugal produced many of the world's great navigators historically. And the Portuguese have a sense of humor. And, and if you're in a cork boat, you can't take yourself too seriously. And, and I think that the whole country was willing to laugh with us all mm -hmm. the way down the river. And, and the going got tough. I, I mean, the wind was against mm -hmm. us. The current uh, was, was slow. We faced some big dams. Uh, and what we thought would be a five-day trip turned into a 17-day odyssey. But we were buoyed along the way because school kids would come down to the riverbanks on field trips. Uh, the t mayors of small villages would welcome us with fireworks and banquets and and uh, we, we had to get a tow at one point through a very narrow windy gorge because we, we tried and were blown out right. several times. I asked the, the gentleman why are, are people so generous? Why are they so mo moved by the cork boat? And he said, listen, everybody has dreams and when they see the cork boat they see that their dreams are possible too. Oh, very nice. Nice. And I guess uh, speaking of dreams, I mean, you were a little boy when uh, your first boat sunk and uh, you first planned this cork boat. So tell us about your own feelings when you finally succeeded in reaching this goal. On the one hand, when we arrived in Porto under the great bridges, there's, these, uh, there's a, one particular bridge that was built by a, a protege of, of Eiffel, of, of, of the Eiffel Tower fame. And we after 17 days of hard rowing, arrived and, and there were boats blowing their horns and cars stopped on the banks, people cheering and waving. and There was a feeling of pure elation uh, at having created this craft and, and lived this journey. And my, my parents went down the river on the boat and Garth and Garth's brother. And, and it, there was just a great bonding experience through this. And on the other hand, there was a there's a, a little sense of, of of the bittersweet, because once you fulfill a dream, what what comes next? And people have often asked me, what what's your next big plan? And the truth of the matter is, I I don't have a next big plan. But what I try to remember is that that the cork boat didn't start out as a big thing either. It started mm -hmm. out as an idea. It started out as a single cork. And, and it grew from there. So I, I just hope that my imagination doesn't desert me and life offers more. And, and what are you uh, doing right now? Uh, living in New York, working as a writer, and uh, looking forward to, to what's next. Looking forward to your next dream. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on Book Chat today and sharing with us your dreams and your dream fulfilled in Cork Book. I'm Carl Hallecker and we'll see you on Book Chat again.